You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I'm going to have you do a little fun thing with me. I want you at this time, I just want you to enter into this fun phase. Think of yourself in heaven. Okay, come on, dream. And what, what comes to mind? And heaven, I mean, the afterlife, you know, the life to come, eternity, however you want to describe it or whatever it is, what comes to mind for you? How do you, how do you picture it? See, when I was a kid, and I think it's because I was heavily influenced by a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial, I pictured heaven as this, this very ethereal, otherworldly, cloudy place where we would sit on clouds in white robes, playing harps, eating cream cheese, and somehow singing to God all at the same time. And I will tell you, I absolutely dreaded it. That idea of heaven sounded miserable to me. Number one, the idea of singing forever was terrible. And anybody who was around me for eternity hearing me sing would have thought the same. They would not have thought this was heaven. And anymore, even more than that, I'm not a big fan of cream cheese. I mean, I'll eat it, but you know, not, my, not my jam. And so that idea, though, I, I soon began to understand as I matured in the faith that heaven could not be something you dread. It had to be good. It had to be something you longed for. And so I quickly realized that heaven had to be a place where it wasn't full of cream cheese, but was full of diet subsisting nothing more than you know, bread pudding and Cinnabons and steak and Dr. Pepper. And the best part about heaven is that you would never get kidney stones and you never had to work out. And the reason I knew that was because Revelation tells me that there will be no more mourning or whining or crying or weeping. And when I think of kidney stones and I think of working out, that's what comes to mind. Can I get an amen on this? See, that was my understanding of heaven. Now, what I don't understand, though, is I don't know how all of you understand heaven. And I imagine that would be kind of a fun thing if we went around and did all of that. But what I would argue is this. is, And I would at least make this bet. That for many of you, your understanding of heaven... Your understanding of eternity, the life to come, the age to come, has had a significant influence on the way you view retirement. Retirement. I mean, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but for many of us, retirement is this time in our lives where we are no longer enslaved to the ticking of the time clock, where we are no longer in bondage to having to work to put food on the table, right? For many of us... Retirement is this blissful picture of freedom where we can finally live however we want, where we can travel, where we can spend time with our loved ones, when we can go to the occasional class of something we always wanted to study. And the list goes on and on, right? For many of us, retirement is this beautiful picture of sitting on a beach just relaxing life away and enjoying the goodness to come. Does this not sound like other people's picture of eternity or heaven? Now, here's the problem with this picture, though. This idea that this is what heaven is like, well, first, I want to be clear on this. 
some aspects of this are absolutely true of heaven. Right? In many respects, we believe that when we get to heaven, we will absolutely be reunited with our loved ones. In many respects, we believe that when we get to heaven, not only will we see our loved ones, but we will be able to enter into this eternal shalom or peace that God intended for us all along. And more than that, we will never have to work in heaven to make ends meet. Things will naturally be provided for us. I believe all of that completely. But this belief, this idea that heaven is some place we have to jump to, some place we have to escape to, some place we have to get to, guys, that's just not in here. This idea that heaven is some otherworldly, ethereal, out there place that is different from the reality we occupy day in and day out, You're not going to find that in here. Now, to explain this, I have to give you a little warning. You're going to have to buckle up and put your life vest on because today I have to take you to the deep end of the theological pool. Okay? So get ready, but don't don't fret. Don't worry. You've been there before and you, you had a moderately good time. Okay? In fact, a couple weeks ago, we jumped into the deep end of the pool, if you remember, and we started touching, touching on this idea of platonic realism. Everybody's good idea of a good Sunday sermon is talking about a deep philosophical concept. So platonic realism, if you don't remember, is this belief that there are two realms. It comes from the Greek philosopher Plato, and Plato argued that there are two realms. There is the physical realm where we live, where everything is a corrupted shadow or shade of this other realm, the spiritual realm, where everything is pure and good and exactly as it's supposed to. It's undefiled. So you have the two realms, the pure good realm and the defiled corrupt realm where we live. And Plato argued that the goal of life was to escape this realm and jump into that realm. Well, the problem with this is that is completely counter to what the Bible says. In fact, the reason though that this becomes a problem for us is when you look at history specifically, we soon begin to discover that the reason platonic realism is something we're going to talk about in church is because platonic realism has become deeply embedded in our Western thinking and in our Western theology. And that's because when you go back and looking at history, some of the greatest theologians of the church, men like Justin the Martyr and St. Augustine and others, were all deeply influenced by Greek philosophers. And subsequently, we have been deeply influenced by them. And why that matters is when we often go to pick up the Bible and we go to read it, whether you realize it or not, you are reading it with a Greek worldview. You are not reading it from the lens of a Jew. The people who actually wrote the book, you're reading it from the lens, specifically in Plato's context, from the lens of a guy who lived 400 years before Jesus and who had never read the Bible, let alone encountered the God of the Bible. And why this matters is, When we pick it up, we don't read it like a Jew. We read it like Plato. And most of the time, that doesn't matter at all. Frankly, it it has very little effect on the way we read the scriptures. But sometimes it has a tremendous impact on the way we read certain things. About a year ago, Pastor Chris did a sermon on the soul. And if you remember that sermon, that was just messing with so many of us. It was so hard for us to wrap our minds around because for many of us, we have been taught our entire lives that the soul is this like 
ghost inside of us that's just waiting and trapped in our bodies and waiting to go up into the heavenly realm and escape this bondage of the body. But here's the thing, you're never going to find that in the Bible. That's a Greek concept. As Pastor Chris rightly and beautifully demonstrated for us when he took apart the word nephesh, the word for soul in Hebrew, he showed that the soul is not detached from the body, but the body is the soul. You are your soul. You cannot separate your body from your soul. They are one in a Hebrew mindset. The way you separate them, though, that's Greek theology. That's Greek philosophy. Another example of where Greek philosophy have influenced us is in our understanding of an afterlife, as if it's this destination or this place we have to strive to get to. The problem is when you go and actually look at the way the Bible describes the afterlife, it never describes it in terms of escapism. It never, in terms, never describes it as if the, word is, the world is just burning around us and falling apart and we got to get off this ship before we go down with it and we got to be transported to some other reality where we're safe and in God's presence for all of eternity. You're never going to find that in there. Rather, when the Bible talks about eternity, when the Bible talks about heaven or this time when we're going to be engaged with God forever, it always talks about the world in terms of refinement or restoration or renewal, or that big buzzword, resurrection. The Bible always talks about taking the earthly elements that currently exist, God's good creation, and restoring them, renewing them, refreshing them. The Bible never talks about destroying and replacing them. A good example of this is if you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, both Peter and Paul talk about the age to come in terms of this massive fire that is going to sweep over the world. And what this fire is going to do is it's going to purify the world. It's going to burn off all of the corruption that exists in it. But in doing so, it's going to reveal the goodness of God's original creation. Notice though, the fire doesn't destroy everything. It just destroys the impurities. It brings back, it renews, it refines, it restores. Do you get this idea? And even more than that, when you flip over to Revelation, especially the end of the book, when we hear about the new heavens and the new earth, and specifically the new Jerusalem, you know, the one with the pearly gates and the streets of gold that we talk about? Peter, or excuse me, John, when he talks about this coming heaven down to earth, he always talks about it as if heaven comes and meets us where we are. John never talks about heaven as this place we have to jump into, as this place we have to escape to receive. It always talks about it in here. In fact, I want to show it to you. This is Revelation chapter 21. Can we throw the first slide up here? John in Revelation 21 says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice, and I highlighted this for you, God meets us where we are. God meets us on our plane of existence within our reality. He doesn't expect us to somehow escape to him. He comes to us in much the same way Jesus did this. This is exactly what we believe Jesus did. He stepped into our world, our reality, lived among us in the flesh. He met us where we are. 
But just as Jesus met us where we are, Jesus didn't leave us as we are. And that's the same idea here with heaven. Heaven will come and meet us where we are, but heaven will not leave this world as it is. Rather, another way of thinking about this is to get into the Greek, or excuse me, the Jewish mindset of how to understand heaven. I think the best way of looking at it is actually going back to Noah's Ark. If you remember the story of Noah's Ark, the world is entirely corrupted, and then the flood comes, wipes out the corruption, and when the waters recede, you are left with a refined, restored, pure world all over again. The world is resurrected. That's a Jewish understanding of eternity. That's a Jewish understanding of the life to come. N.T. Wright, the great Anglican bishop and theologian, describes the coming of heaven in this way. And I just really like this quote. It's from his book, Surprised by Hope, a book completely focused on the topic of heaven. So if this idea that we're talking about today is peaking your brain, you're like, I want to dig more, that book. Surprised by heaven, N.T. Wright, highly recommend it. But he sums up the transition of the coming of heaven like this. The transition from the present world to the new would be a matter not of destruction of the present space-time universe, but rather of its radical healing. In other words, a biblical understanding of heaven tells us that there is a continuation between this world and the next. A continuation between this life and the life to come. And why this matters is because fundamentally, that means what we do on this earth, what we do with our lives, all of it carries with us into eternity. None of it is wasted. All of it matters. All of life is preparation for the life to come. And this isn't just John speculating on this. This isn't just N.T. Wright. This is straight out of Jesus. There is a parable in Matthew 25 that I want to look at with you this morning. And so if you would like, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Um, And if you're not familiar with Matthew 24 and 25 off the top of your head, the whole context of this is we're at the end of the gospel And Jesus is now sitting with his disciples trying to help them understand what the life to come is going to be like. They have somehow wrapped their mind around the idea that he is going to die. I don't think they fully get it. But they go, okay, if you're going to die, what happens next? When are you coming back? What that's going to look like? How do we engage in the middle of that? Like, where do we live? What do we do And so chapters 24 and 25 are Jesus' attempt at trying to help his disciples understand what the end times will be like, what the time to come will be like, what it's going to be like when he shows up again and how we are going to live. And chapter 25, this passage we're looking at, is right in the heart of it. It's page 677. And again, the whole point is to help his disciples try to understand what it looks like to glimpse eternity. It begins like this. We're going to throw it on the screen for you. Again, it, meaning the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called to his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money at work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. 
After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold came also. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your master's happiness. Then the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, that you harvested where you have not sown and gathered where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then why didn't you put my money on deposit with the bankers so at least I would have returned and gotten something back with interest? Take the bag of gold away from him and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so the parable. All right, the point of which, as I told you, the whole point of this parable is to help Jesus' disciples understand what the life to come will be like. The parable introduces us to three guys. Three guys who are given differing sums of money from their owner, right? And they are told, just like money managers are expected to do today, they are told to go and put that money to work so that when the owner shows up, he can see some gain in his profits. Quite simple, quite basic. And we're told that two of the three guys, they crushed it, right? They took the money, they took what the owner had given them, they invested it, and they reaped massive rewards. And then when the owner came back, not only did the owner praise them, Right? We usually stop at this point. The owner says, well done, good and faithful servant. Did you also catch what he also said? You have been faithful with few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. The clear implication here is this, that the owner has more work in mind for these faithful servants to come. They aren't done even though he has returned. Now, On the flip side, you got the third guy who just sat on what the owner gave him, who didn't do anything with it. And Jesus, Jesus seems to call in this guy lazy, whereas the other, the way the the third guy kind of produces it himself is, well, he was just afraid of upsetting the manager. But Jesus is like, yeah, you weren't afraid. You were just lazy. You didn't do anything with it. And so when Jesus, or when the master shows up again, this guy just, I mean, this guy gets it. He is verbally lashed. He has that which was given to him stripped away from him, and he's cast outside the master's presence. I mean, this is intense. Now, normally when we read parables, we naturally just want to get sucked into that part of the story, right? The stuff that scares us, the stuff that freaks us out a little bit, and we go, I need to understand every single detail because I want to make sure I don't do what that guy did. 
The problem is, when we read parables like that, when we get focused on some small detail, we miss the bigger point. And remember, when Jesus told this parable, he was telling it for a specific purpose. And whenever you read a parable, you have to come up with what was Jesus' main point. All the subsequent points are not always reliable for you to build your theology upon. Frankly, it's never a good idea to build your theology upon one verse to begin with or one concept out of one small section of Scripture. And so if you're just fixating on, well, am I doing enough? Is this really about workspace righteousness? Have I earned my salvation? You've completely missed the point. Rather, when you consider the big picture of this story, I mean, think about it. What he's trying to communicate is this. That the Lord has blessed us each with unique giftings in differing amounts. And I say giftings because, and this is where I just find this interesting. The Greek word for money in this passage is the word talenta. Okay, and some of you are going to the food thing like me, and you immediately went to the new gelato you can get at the grocery store. Talenta, delicious, right? This is all about heaven, okay? That's why I'm bringing up food. But no, talenta, it's where we get the, uh, the, the root of our English word talent or gifting or special attribute. And we all recognize that we have each been gifted with different talents, right? And we all have those talents in varying capacities. Some of you are incredibly gifted artists. Some of you can barely draw a stick figure if your life depended on it, Right? Some of you are incredibly impre or impressive engineers who can drill into a project or whatever it is, but put you into a counseling session, and dear God, you're going to need more counseling than those coming in to see you, right? Whereas others of you may not be very good at math, may not be very good at poetry, but you are phenomenal with individuals. You are fantastic at sitting with people and engaging them. See, we all have different skills, and we all have differing capacities, not every piano player is Mozart, right? That's just the way it works. But Jesus' point in this parable is while we have all been gifted something uniquely and we've all got differing amounts of it, we have to take whatever it is that we have been given and we need to be faithful with it. We need to put it into good action. We need to put it into good use. And when we do, when we are faithful with what he has given us, not only will the Lord come back or call us home and say, well done, good and faithful servant, he will take what we have done, he will look at it, and he will say, you have been faithful with a few things. Here, I got so much more in store for you. And the responsibilities will continue to in increase. The other way I said this earlier, and I think this jump just sums it up a little more simply for us, is this. What we do here on this earth, with our lives, matters. It carries with us into eternity. All that you do is preparation for the life to come. Nothing you do is ever wasted. And I bring this up, and this is why we wanted to kind of end this whole series on work talking about this specific passage. Because if you've been with us the last five weeks, you know that for the last five weeks, we've talked about this concept of work as God intended it. Work as this idea that was never an afterthought, but rather when God sat down to make you and me in the beginning, he intentionally, purposefully created us to work, to be his image, to have purpose in life. 
You and I, when God were finding the earliest pages of Scripture, this was why we exist. And therefore, when we work, when we live as God intended, we honor him with our lives. Right? We're doing what we're supposed to do. And that, therefore, pleases him. And it doesn't matter what the job is. It doesn't matter if it's actually your nine to five, if you have a job, or even if you're just, even if you're retired or you're a stay-at-home mom, from the work we do around the house to the errands we run to, you know, checking on our neighbors to caring for our kids to picking up diapers to exercise, even exercise, all of it is an opportunity to worship the Lord. All of it can and should be viewed then as an opportunity to put a gigantic smile on God's face. But even more than that, again, putting, pulling all of this series together, Pastor Chris last week took this to a whole new level, and I really appreciated the way he did this. When he quoted Martin Luther, Pastor Chris talked about how God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor sure does. God doesn't need our good works. It's not like God is lacking, right? It's not like the reason when God sat down to create us, he's like, man, I really need some robots to run around and do something to fill the void in my life. No, God was entirely content. And so why did God create us? Why did God create us to work? The answer is quite simple from a biblical perspective because he invites us to come and play. He invites us to work alongside him. He invites us to enter into his ongoing work of creating a better world, contributing to the ongoing common good of humanity. And he says, look, I could do this myself, but hey, come join me. Jump in. Contribute alongside me. And I will admit, that is completely mind-boggling to me. Absolutely mind-boggling. I don't think I'm ever going to fully wrap my head around this idea that God has invited me to play in his kingdom work. And yet over and over in scripture, that is the picture of God we get. It's not a needy God, and it's not a God who's angry that I'm not doing something. It's a God who's sitting there going, John, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You want to go do something? You want to jump in? You want to contribute? You want to play? That's amazing. But now, think about it this way. When you pull all of this together, if this is how we understand work, as work being anything that contributes to the common good of humanity and anything that honors God at the end of the day, and now you pull it in line of Jesus' parable, that means all of our work, everything we do, has meaning. Everything we do has purpose. All of it is preparation for eternity. All of it is preparation for the life to come. And it doesn't matter what the job is. Everything from taking the trash out of your house to running a Fortune 500 company to drawing up a spreadsheet to simply writing a letter to your neighbor or your friend or checking in on a friend at the hospital um, to picking up diapers. I mean, guys, the list goes on and on to sitting in a toll booth. I don't know what you do, but the point is this. Everything you do matters. Everything you do is an opportunity to honor the Lord. Everything you do is an opportunity to put a gigantic smile on his faith, and nothing you do is ever wasted. That's remarkable to me. Now, on the flip side, this means that none of us should ever view our work life as ever being complete. This idea that somehow we retire from ever having to work is just 
not biblical. That being said, of course we all hope to enter into a stage in life where we don't have to work to make ends meet. Of course we all long for the day when we don't have to go to a job that sucks the life out of us. We all long for that, okay? But this idea that we should retire from work entirely That's just not in the Bible. As if the gifts and talents God has given you somehow expire in this life. As if you all of a sudden turn 65 and become useless and have absolutely nothing to contribute anymore. Where did we get this from? Look, if it seems like I'm kind of talking about the absurdity of this, I put out there this entire sermon series. I would love for you on your connection card to write me a question or a comment or whatever it is about this series. And I got a number of questions or another comments about it, but I only got one question. And the one question I got is this. The question is this. Can we throw it on the screen? Why are we focused on work when 95% of the people here are retired? Work for retirees is living our lives, not working for our lives. Now, in many respects, and I want to be clear on this, I actually agree with some of the sentiments of this statement. I agree, obviously, that there are many of you in this room who are retired. And that's a great thing. You don't have to work to make ends meet. Praise God for that. Obviously, it's not 95%, but that doesn't matter. I also agree that when you get to retire, you do get to fully live life. You get to throw yourself into the fullness of life because you are no longer obligated to have to work to put food on the table. But where I disagree with this sentiment, the notion in this card that somehow when we retire, we're able then to fully live because we don't work, I don't believe you can ever truly live as God intended if you don't ever work as God intended. And so this idea that you can somehow divorce living from work is so counter-biblical. It's right up there with this notion that somehow you need to escape this reality we find ourselves in and jump into some heavenly reality on a different plane of existence. It's just not in the Bible. So look, I I, want to say this specifically to those of you who are retired. Specifically to those of you who are retired, I just want to make this clear. You are still here for a reason. The Lord has not called you home for some reason, and I don't know what that is, but the one thing I'm confident of is he's got you here for a purpose. And when you put that When you tie all of this together, when you pull it together in light of the Lord's parable, the Lord has gifted you with some unique talent and gift. Do not sit on it. Do not sit on it. Rather, you need to be focused on how to be a good and faithful servant with what it is that you have been given. I say this especially to those of you with 40 years of work experience under your belts. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but your skills, your insight, your wisdom is tremendously valuable. You may not be running corporations anymore. You may not be building, you know, jets or spaceships. You may not be managing a classroom anymore, but the skills you developed in years of working with people the skills you developed in learning to manage your finances, the skills you learned in understanding the big picture of life rather than getting caught up in the minutia of the little things, 
Those skills, that talent, those gifts, that wisdom, that will never expire. And even more than that, those are tremendously valuable attributes. And if you don't believe me, look around at all the young people in the room who have yet to learn those skills. Just the big one, just the big one. You know, one of the things I've come to deeply appreciate about our older people in this community is when you come to me and you go, John, I know you're really getting excited about this one thing, but it'll pass. <laughs> it'll pass. And if you know me, you know I get overly passionate, clearly, about things, and I run into them, and I throw all this effort, and I fret about it, and I stress about it, and then you come alongside me and go, John, it'll pass. I did that 30, 40 years ago. I thought it was a big deal. Yeah, nobody ever thinks about it anymore. If you don't think that matters, if you don't think that has value, I, I don't know what to tell you. Those skills are never going to expire. But if you disengage from work, if you buy into this myth that somehow you have nothing to offer, not only are you sitting on what the Lord has given you, and that should definitely freak you out a little bit, you miss out on getting to continue to play in God's ongoing work in the world. So instead, I encourage you, especially for those of you who are retired, I want you to consider your skills. I want you to consider your experience. I want you to consider what you have learned and all of it. And as you reflect on this series about work, I want you to think about and even talk with your friends about how you can leverage those gifts, those talents, to continue to honor the Lord and love your neighbor with the rest of your days. Because remember, when you consider the scope of eternity, your work life is really just beginning. Why are you going to phone it in already? So I just want to close this series, I want to close this sermon with these very simple encouragements, church. Let us strive in all that we say, in all that we do, to live in such a way that we truly work as God intended it. Let us, in everything we do, from the smallest of opportunities, see it as an opportunity to honor the Lord and love our neighbor. Let us strive so that at the end of our life, when the Lord calls us home or meets us here on this plane of existence, the first words out of his mouth are, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things, now I got so much more in store for you. Come and share in your master's happiness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise as you are a God who lets nothing go to waste. You are a God who never trashes your creation. You are a God who has the ability to step into the brokenness of life and redeem it. Things that we never believe are capable of being done, you do all the time. And so, Father, as we reflect on our lives, as broken as they often are, as arrogant as we often are, Lord, we recognize that all of this, Lord, will be redeemed by you. And so we desire so deeply 
that in the smallest of things to the biggest of responsibilities, Lord, that we would seek most importantly to put a giant smile on your face and that through these would be opportunities to best love our neighbor as ourselves, as your son modeled for us. We ask all this in Jesus' precious, powerful, and holy name. And all God's people said, amen.